Thank you so much, Wesley Ringers. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you again. We continue this week with our sermon series uh, focused on Adam Hamilton's book, Half-Truths. We're looking this Sunday at chapter 3, which deals with the half-truth, God won't give you more than you can handle. And with that, let us center ourselves and pray. In the name of uh, God, we come before you and give you thanks for this time we may be together. Help us, God, to open our hearts to hear what we need to hear today. May everything be pleasing in your presence, you who are our rock and redeemer. Amen. As we think about this, this phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, I remember a time back when I was a hospital chaplain, and I was just out of seminary, and I was working um, at a hospital on the East Coast, and uh, a woman asked me a, a similar kind of question. She was a patient going through a terrible time, and she said, Chaplain, is it really true, is it really true that God won't give me more than I can handle? Now, I've read books about this stuff, but this was a moment when after seminary, here I was, and she was really looking to me as the kind of authority to help her deal with this question, and I was kind of freaking out. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so I put together some words to try to help her, and I had never really you know, encountered this in a practical, everyday situation outside of an academic kind of context, and rushed back to my supervisory chaplain and said, what am I supposed to say when someone asks me that? Because I don't know what to do. And she was awesome. And she said, she didn't use the word half-truths, but it was basically the same kind of concept that we're dealing with today. She explained, Scott, there are phrases that are theological in nature that, you know, kind of one-liners, a lot of people say, that captures a key belief they hold to for support. And some of these one-liners are awesome. And like, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. It's a rich, it's a powerful and short theological statement. There's no issues with it. It's awesome. But there's others, one-liners, like the one we're looking at today, she was saying, that, you know, they work until they don't. And usually when someone is under a tremendous degree of stress or pressure, which often happens in a hospital, then they start to realize, maybe they can't articulate it in words, but they start to put their finger on the fact that maybe this saying I've held to for so many years isn't really helping me through this moment, and I don't know why. And she said, this patient you were working with was, was starting to sense that and probably looking to you to help her kind of sift through it and make sense of what, was, what she was struggling with in regard to that phrase. This phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, it's a half-truth. So there is, there's some goodness in this phrase, particularly that it says that God is with us, that God is all-powerful, that things happen under God's purview, and that God uh, cares about us. I think all of that is in this phrase. But where it really begins to break down, as Hamilton writes, is the first four words, God won't give you. The problem with that is that it contradicts God's all-loving nature, the very core of God's being, if we state that all of the suffering and evil and pain in this world is intentionally given by God to us, as the phrase says, to test our faith and see if we will be able to endure the pressure. That doesn't sound like, right, the actions of a loving God. I think it's helpful to think of God sometimes as a loving parent. 
Would you, for your loving child, wish evil and suffering and pain on them and hope that in so doing they would get stronger? Certainly not. We know as a, as a parent, you know that's, that's going to be something your child faces, but you would never wish it on them. You only want the best. And that our God is a loving parent times infinity. Our God is not someone who wants us to suffer, but God will be there with us in the midst of it to face it. Something that helps me when, when I think about the fact that, yes, God is all-powerful. Nothing happens outside of God's purview. Yet we live in a world with suffering and pain and evil. It's, it's inevitable. The two are there. How do you make sense of that divide? Well, a phrase that helps me is to acknowledge that God permits certain things to happen in this world like suffering and pain and even the actions of the evil one. But God does not bless those things. God does not want those things. God permits, allows them to happen begrudgingly out of a deep respect for the sovereignty of our free will as human beings. If God took away all the ability for us to make bad choices, we would essentially be nothing more than robots. And so part of the suffering and pain and evil we see in this world is human beings who are making bad decisions. But then there's natural disasters or the onset of cancer out of nowhere that often has nothing to do with someone's decisions. In that case, we as Christians believe that the world was created good, the entrance of sin into our reality uh, caused us as human beings to be subjected to the brokenness of nature and its dangers. Um, but we look forward to a time at the time of Jesus' second coming when the heaven and earth meet and the world is recreated back to its original state. But you know, friends, all of these, these ways that we can theologically explain God's all-powerfulness with the existence of suffering, they're still not perfect. There's still mystery. There's still wrestlings that I have with these, with these ideas. And I think it, there's a point where you have to acknowledge we can't explain everything. We can't understand every facet of this. To some degree, this is a paradox. And when your house is burning down in California, or floodwaters are coming in and destroying your home in Houston, or we witness something tragic like the Sandy Hook School shooting, these theological phrases can fly out the window. And we can just know that our heart is breaking and we don't know how all of this could come to pass. I had a seminary professor once who gave me this really rich metaphor to help explain the mystery. How can we have this all-powerful God and the existence of brokenness in our world? I said, imagine that you're an infant uh, and you're looking up at a table or a toddler and there's a master weaver working, weaving together a tapestry. And there's all sorts of colors of thread being used. You have yellows and blues and greens and, and you see below the table only the threads hanging down. And they don't look ordered or anything. It's kind of a jumbled mess. You don't know what in the world is happening or why this adult is doing this. But you say, oh, I like those yellows and greens. They look pretty. And then you have the black thread that hangs over the edge. And you say, oh, I don't like that black thread. That, why is that black thread there? I can't make sense of that. That's crazy. That looks awful. And then you grow up and you become an adult. And now you're able to see the whole tapestry that the Master Weaver is working on. You say, Wow, I hated that black thread, but when I see how it is woven in between all of these yellows and greens and blues, there is a way in which this now works together in a way that I could have never anticipated when I was much younger. My professor went on explaining the metaphor to say, this is representative of what it may be like after we die. 
Perhaps when we die and we're able to see life from a different vantage point with God, we may be able to see how God is able to redeem even the broken areas of our lives that seem unredeemable today. Our God is an all-powerful God after all. Nothing is outside of God's possibilities. Perhaps there is a way that this paradox we can't seem to make sense of today will begin to make more sense on the other side of death. I don't know, but that really does give me peace and acknowledge the fact that there are mysteries in between the real beliefs that give us support. So, this phrase, God won't give us more than we can handle, some would argue there's a scriptural basis for it. And Hamilton addresses that. He says that the scripture, which is cited when persons say there's scripture behind this phrase, is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And as we'll see, Hamilton argues that this scripture is being misinterpreted as it applies to this phrase. So let me read it for us. No temptation has seized you that isn't common for people. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your abilities. Instead, with the temptation, God will also supply a way out so that you will be able to endure it. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, to live like a Corinthian? Well, if you have, it's referring to the people that Paul was writing to in his letter in 1 Corinthians. These people, they had temptation around them on every side particularly idolatry mixed in with tremendous sexual immorality. There were really no social prohibitions around uh, sexuality in that time and led to all sorts of different kinds of debauchery in a way that we can't even begin to imagine in our culture today. And the, the complication was that because it surrounded this new infant Christian community, they were constantly tempted, and these were new Christians. They, they had just given their lives to Jesus Christ, so they had tons of family and friends who hadn't converted who wanted them to come back into their old lifestyle. To make things more complicated, as they'd walk around the market, all this food would be dedicated to idols, and they'd have these temples. And these persons, if they ate the food, it would be a kind of temptation. Because remember, back in this historical time period, people believed that everything happened because of the work of some kind of God. So they were tempted when they hit hard times to go back to the idols. We see this with the Jewish people throughout their narrative, the Israelites. They would run back to their idols, but then when they go back to these temples where the idols are, there's prostitution and other forms of debauchery and sin, and they fall back into their lifestyles and forget what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the context which helps us interpret this passage. So when we read it, this is not a passage that's referring, as our half-truth says, that God inflicts all of the suffering and pain and evil we experience to test us. Rather, it's saying that God permits, allows, does not want, but allows temptation to occur around us. But because of the grace of God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, God will provide a way out, the Scripture says, a way for us to resist the temptation that afflicts us without violating our free will in the process. Hamilton tells a story, a lighthearted story of when he was tempted. Perhaps this will resonate with others. He says one morning he was uh, at his church, Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, and he's writing a sermon on the topic of temptation. 
Well, he goes down, and it's lunchtime, and he's perusing, and my goodness, I do this all the time. I say, what's in the staff room today to eat? Let me just go take a look. There's got to be a cookie there somewhere. And I need a cookie. And uh, so he's walking around, and all of a sudden, the, the lady from the hospitality ministry who also runs the cafe there at their church, she's, she's wheeling a cart of DQ snacks, okay, white bags. He sees that. Oh, he's like a hawk. He's like, oh, man, there's DQ. He says, what's in those bags? She says, oh, well, there's hot dogs and hamburgers, and we also have some chicken strips with white gravy and fries. He says, I'll take one of those. And then another lady comes by right after that one with big things of Dairy Queen ice cream. Well, he can't pass that up. I mean, who in their right mind would? So he takes that. He goes back to his office. This is, this is far more food than he ever needs to eat. Eats all of it and feels sick as a dog. He said he felt like his own dog, who just a few weeks earlier had gotten into the garage, ripped open a bag of dog food, ate 20 pounds of dog food, and had to go to the vet. I can't say I've eaten 20 pounds of dog food, but I can at least relate personally. I remember growing up, my parents' dog, Drake, a big black lab, we leave him in the kitchen because he liked the kitchen. Uh, it was open and such. But this would, as you can see where I'm going here, so my mom, multiple times, this has happened, by the way, my mom would make a big cake. And one time we had a big party and just really carefully prepared this cake. And she walked out, she, and she took a nap, came back, Drake had eaten the whole cake, gone. <laughs> on the floor, on his side. He was done, but he lived like a king, I'm sure, as he ate that cake. <laughs> I would have done the same thing in his, in his paws. <laughs> So friends, these are lighthearted examples, and certainly gluttony and overeating can be a serious problem, uh, hear me, but these, these stories are meant to help us think just more broadly about the, the nature of temptation. I don't know what you face, what temptation may afflict you on a regular basis, but I want to speak to how God's grace can help us resist temptation in that time of trial. And that's where we can look at passages like Matthew 4 where Jesus, he's in the desert, and he goes to be tempted. God permits this. And what does he do when Satan tempts him? With all these kinds of different angles and perspectives. But he, Jesus throws Scripture right in Satan's face. Scripture can be a powerful ally, especially Scriptures that relate to particular temptations that afflict us. Memorize one or three of them. Commit them to heart. And when you face that time of temptation, say them out loud. Have them go from here to here. And when they really come into your heart, there is a strength that those scriptures can give you that is very special. And God's grace moving through it. Another related example from scripture is Ephesians 6. And there, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and describes this metaphor of the armor of God. And says that, we who are clad in this armor, we have the shield of faith to fend off the fiery arrows of the evil one, and we have the sword of the Spirit, which is equated to the Word of God, and with it we may strike back against the evil one. Our faith helps us endure the temptations that afflict us, but then we can use those scriptures that we have on our hearts to fight back in that time of temptation. So, this scripture, it doesn't relate to God testing us in terms of all suffering. It particularly relates to the, to to the topic of temptation only, and that God will help us through it. But what can we say then about this phrase? Is there a more helpful way to think about God won't give us more than we can handle? 
Well, Hamilton, he rephrases it in a very helpful manner. He writes, It's not that God won't give you more than you can handle, but that God will help you handle all that you've been given. This last Wednesday evening, uh, our book study met, and uh, we do that before each week when there's the sermon is preached. And the class said they like Hamilton's rephrasing, but they would change the end. Uh, the word given is still used. And, and they said, we know that Hamilton is not meaning that God still gives us suffering, but we just don't like how it's phrased, and there'd be a better word choice. They said, how about this? God will help you handle all that you go through or experience. So, if that bothers you, I think those are helpful ways of just a slight nuance on the phrase. And Hamilton connects this to a powerful verse. I think, you know, when you go through a particular time of suffering, this verse, it can be something really to lean on. It's Psalm 46, verses 1 through 2. God is our refuge and strength, a help always near in times of great trouble. That's why we won't be afraid when the world falls apart when the mountains crumble into the center of the sea. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 2. But what does this look like? How does God help us through our times of suffering? Because there can be times, right, when you feel like you have more than you can handle, but God seems to be nowhere nearby, and you feel so disconnected from God and perhaps even others around you because the suffering is just so great. Becky Childs, one of our church members, gave me permission to share this story. She shared it in our Wednesday night class. It's about her husband, David, and when he passed away 10 years ago. Well, Becky and uh, her two girls, they were uh, now uh, Katie's in college, Alex is out working and graduated. Uh, but back then, this is 10 years ago, so it's Becky, uh, Katie is seven, Alex is 10 years old at the time. And their husband, father, David, He's a strong man, great health, never had really any medical issues in his life, but then he falls ill with a virus out of nowhere. And they think it's just a virus. Then they wonder if it's a more severe case of the flu. So they take him to the hospital. Doctor puts him on some antibiotics, says this will fix you right up, go home, come back in a few days if it doesn't. Well, they come back in a few days, and he's worsening. They don't know what's happening. So the doctor says, okay, we're going to run an MRI. They do that and they discover in his brain that he is suffering from an uncurable condition called CJD, which is similar to mad cow's disease. This involves the body eating away at its own brain tissue. It's a tragic, horrible condition. Now, for some persons, this lasts several months, but for David, his was more severe and he had 14 days after the diagnosis and then he passed away. Becky felt like she had more than she could handle. Here she has these two girls who are devastated and now looking to her as their only form of support and she has to somehow get out of bed each day to be that parent while she's grieving about the loss of her spouse so suddenly. She was, she said, surrounded by so many people who were loving from this church and beyond and everything people did she was so deeply grateful for. And at the same time, some persons used the very half-truth we're talking about today and said it to her. And she knew that when they said, Becky, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. She knew that it was coming from a loving, beautiful heart. And so she wasn't angry with the person or anything like that. But it left her scratching her head. Because she would say to our class, but I knew, A, that I didn't think God took my husband from me. I think that's just a part of this life and the suffering we all go through. And B, I believe in a loving God 
and see, I do feel like I have more than I can handle right now. So I just don't agree with that phrase. But again, she wasn't angry at the person. This was an internal struggle for her and didn't know how else it could be you know, thought through in a different manner. Well, she said what did help her were people who would cook, people who would write her cards and calls, and they would marry together, she said, word and action. And that was really powerful for her. And said so many people in this church did that very thing for her, and she will never forget that. Um, she, looking back 10 years later, she had this rich reflection that I just I want to read to you how she said it. She said, it's a part of life and what happens to you, but life keeps rolling on. We, our family, uh, we have been blessed in many, many ways. Suffering is just something we all go through. I'm grateful for the help I received at the time, especially from the people of this church. Amen. You know, I wonder at times if when we go through tremendous moments of suffering, instances, if it makes us more attuned to how God can be moving in our lives to help us, that grace that's always with us and moving and working. And something Becky said as she was thinking back is that what also really helped her were the coincidences, the seeming coincidences. Someone would call or write just at the right moment. Or someone would show up on her door when she felt like she could barely get out of bed. Maybe you've been there and had coincidences like this occur. We had uh, a famous speaker, Tom Zuba, who was here at the church this last Thursday, and speaking about the topic of grief. And a main point he drove home is looking for the signs of God and your loved one after your loved one's passing. And that this, there, there really can be signs that if you're attenuated to it. And he told the story of how... Uh, his daughter, who uh, fell ill and died uh, in her adolescent years, her birthday was on 222, part of her date. Uh, her jersey number was 222. It was a number she frequently used. And that became a sign for him of her presence and God working after her death. Well, after she passed very suddenly, uh, Tom, his wife, and son, who were remaining, they went to Disney World. And there they go to the concierge desk. They just need to get away from things. This is just a few weeks after the death. And the concierge says, well, sir, your room number is 222. Now, how do you choose to see that? And this was Tom's point. Do you choose to say that's just a coincidence? Or do you choose to say that that perhaps is the spirit of his deceased daughter along in the spirit of God who is always with us saying, I'm okay, that God comforting them? After my brother passed away, a sign for us was doves. Doves were everywhere. And we would always see them, at especially the hardest days, my parents would say in retrospect. Uh, they, one time they were at the Grand Canyon, and they saw as they were praying a dove. I'm sorry. The dove, just fly. Um, as we were together. Um, and then when we got home, a dove flew right over our home. That is God with us in the midst of the suffering. Friends, there can be moments in life when we have more than we can handle. But God is with you. And sometimes the suffering can be this kind of magnifier or new set of glasses that can focus us to how God's all-present grace is moving. But we may miss it sometimes. I want to conclude with a story about uh, Annie Johnson Flint that Hamilton raises at the end of chapter 3. 
Annie was born Christmas Eve, 1866. She, uh, her mother died at three. Her father fell ill shortly thereafter, didn't die, but had to adopt her, put her up for adoption. So she goes to live with the Flints, wonderful parents as well, but in high school, they die. So she loses, as an adolescent, two sets of parents. She goes out, completes her, her training, becomes a teacher. She's out just a few years into her career, falls ill with a degenerative disease, and can no longer continue to work. Eventually, it, it continues to compromise her motor functions. So, uh, she has to be committed to a sanitarium. She was fully lucid, but she, that was, at that time in our country's history, you had to go to a sanitarium if you were going to receive the kind of ongoing daily care for her basic needs that she required. And she stayed there for 40 years until she died. She said, what can I do with this body that is degrading on me? I want to do something productive. She remembered that she learned how to write poetry. So, uh, while she was staying with the Flints, her adoptive parents. So she dedicated her life for those 40 years to writing poetry. When her hands stopped working, she eventually dictated them. And the poem I'm about to read to you that I think just so captures everything we've been thinking about together this morning is her best-known, perhaps, poem. And it is entitled, What God Hath Given You. I pray that it is a blessing to you today. And here it is. God hath not promised, excuse me, the title is What God Hath Promised. My apologies. God hath not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.